If I could do something tonight that was unusual and ask some people to come here on this grass stage, I wonder what it would go like. If we were to summon any angel from heaven and one of those angels were to descend from the the, the portals of heaven, come and stand on this grass, I am 100% convinced that that angel would speak to us about Jesus. If I can invite any person who has died and enjoying the the glories of heaven, seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoying the fellowship of the saints and perceiving the, the magnificence of God the Father, they were to come back and reappear on this earth, I'm convinced they would talk to us about Jesus. If we could get any person who is died and experiencing the horrors of hell and they were to come back tonight, I'm convinced they would talk to us about Jesus. If the Holy Spirit were to materialize and he were to stand here, John 14 and John 16 tells us he would talk to us about Jesus. If God the Father were to step from his throne onto the riverbank, he would say, Behold my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He would speak to us about Jesus. If the devil were to materialize tonight and talk to us, I am convinced he would talk to us very happily about Jesus, but not the Jesus of the Bible. He would use our word with his dictionary. He would love for us to talk about a different kind of Jesus or what Paul tells the Corinthians, another Jesus. Christianity is fundamentally and comprehensively about Jesus. One more thought that we'll add into our theme uh, for the summer. If any Old Testament saint were to come back tonight, think of anyone in the Old Testament, and they were to speak to us tonight, they were on the special invite list, and thank you, Scott, for allowing me to come, I am convinced they would speak to us about Jesus. I want to show you one of my favorite and most horrific stories in the Bible and how it points us to Jesus. Turn to Job chapter 1 if you have your Bibles. We're going to eventually get to Job chapter 9. It's in your booklet, but we're looking at Job chapter 1 for a moment. Here's the the, the process tonight. I'm going to tell you a story with which most of you are familiar, but I'm going to assume that there may be people here who, who don't know a whole lot about Job. And then we're going to find our way into the middle of the book and draw some conclusions, okay? Job chapter 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. I love this. That man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. You get that? Ten children. He possession, his possessions were also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many friends and servants. And that man was the greatest of all men in the East. His sons used to go up and hold a feast in the house of each one of his each one on his day. That's, that's another way of saying they had a birthday party. 
I, I don't think I've ever competed with boats when I'm preaching. This is just a new experience for me. Or jet skis. Remember what I said if Satan could show... No, it's not. I'm just kidding. Well, they had a birthday party on the, each of their birthdays, and they went to their house. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and concentrate them, consecrate them, rising up in the morning, offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. He'd say, perhaps one of my sons has sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So Job did this continually. He was always looking out for his kids. Now, shift the camera like a movie set. Shift the camera from Job and his family to heaven. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, those are angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came among them. There's a lot we could say here. Satan is only and merely an angel. He's not the bad God. He's only an angel. He's not omnipresent. He's not, not omniscient. He's a what we call in theology a localized entity. He can only be at one place at one time. He gets in line with the rest of the angels to give an account to God. Verse 7, The Lord said to Satan, From where did you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Tell you what, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Don't you wish that was your reputation? Wow. Then Satan pushes back. He answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased the land. But, and now Satan challenges God. Put forth your hand and touch all that he possesses, all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. One of the greatest mysteries in the Bible is verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Satan says, I've seen Job. He's blessed with possessions. He's blessed with friends. He's blessed with servants. He's blessed with ten children and a family. He has all this because... You've been too kind to him. God says, tell you what. You can take everything from him. Now, just a little theological footnote. You know, I think about Job and I think about Abraham in this regard. Job has no idea. We're going to see what's going to happen. Job has no idea this conversation has happened. He has no idea that Satan has got permission from God to afflict him. Just like Abraham is told to go and execute his son Isaac. He didn't know God was testing him. The narrator tells us that. He didn't know that. I love the fact that you and I know God tests us. You and I know God has mysteries uh, beyond what we're, we're experiencing for our good. He does all things for good. Job didn't know this. All right, the camera shifts from heaven now back to Job, back to the earth. Verse 13. Now, on the day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, probably the oldest brother's birthday, they're all the families there. 
the kids, the grandkids, ten children, all the grandkids are there. And then it begins in verse 14. And what I'm about to read to you takes place in the span of not more than 60 seconds. Verse 14, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job loses friends. He loses oxen. He loses wealth. He loses servants. Don't miss messenger number two. Verse 16. While messenger one was still speaking, so picture this. Job's in his house. A guy busts through the door. He's telling him this terrible thing happened. He hasn't finished the story, and another guy busts through the door. How do we know that? Verse 16, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God, probably lightning, fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. He loses a whole other cadre of friends. Verse 17, while messenger number two is still speaking, in comes messenger number three. Verse 17, while he was still speaking... Another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So what we have so far are three men who've run into Job's house. You can almost see, if you were to have a a panoramic uh, cinematic a way to see this outside the house. There are four men running as fast as they can toward Job's house. They have terrible news to tell Job. And I'm sure they can see each other coming because they, they get there at the same time. They're overspeaking one another. And each of them, I'm sure, thinks, I have worse things to say than you do. Remember, we're still inside the span of 60 seconds. And here comes messenger number four, verse 18. While he, messenger number three, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters. Stop right there. Can you imagine this decline of news? The fourth messenger comes. He, while this third messenger is talking, he says, no, no, no. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind, a mighty wind, came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. The Hebrew here is very interesting, but it's also pretty easy to figure out if you just know basic wind and geometry. This wind hit the four corners of the house. You know what that is? 
That's a tornado. That's a tornadic event. They see it coming across. They see the wind coming across the land. They probably try to shelter in the house. It hits all four corners at the same time. A prevailing wind only comes from one direction. It crushes the house. The ceiling falls and the entire family dies. Verse 20, then Job tore, arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, how can he worship? Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In verse 22, through all this Job did not sin nor did he blame God. Just when you think it couldn't get worse, chapter 2 comes. Again, there was a day we span back, uh, uh, the, the camera scans back to heaven. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, this regular accountability session that God has with all the angels, including Satan. Satan came also from among them came to present himself to the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Well, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And then God says, who knows everything, right? God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? He knows everything that's happened. For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Notice God's assessment of Job after he loses his family is still the same as before the tragedy. He still holds fast his integrity, God says. Although you, (laughs) this is almost hard to read. He's talking to Satan. Listen, God is talking to Satan. He says, although you, incited me against him to ruin him without cause. God was formally, formally behind Satan's attack on Job. He says, I incited I did this. Do you have a category in your theology for God doing things that we perceive as unpleasant, even though in his eternal purposes fall into the category of all things that work together for for good. Verse 4, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. He turns toward him. However, Put forth your hand, he's talking to God, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Satan tells God, asks God to do this to Job. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. How bad was it? He had these infectious blisters and he used to take a broken piece of pottery, a pot sheared, a sharp piece of pottery, scrape himself to relieve the, the blisters. And he was sitting in, his ash, in the ashes. 
I didn't know there was such a thing, but there, there's a category of scholarship called medical theologians. These are men with um, uh, MDs or PhDs in medicine and also uh, PhDs in theology, and they combine those. And the, the, the medical theologians or theological doctors, however you want to think about it, have looked at this and done lots of consulting about it, and they really think the best explanation of this is probably shingles from the top of the head to the bottom of the foot. I don't know if you've ever had a small outbreak of shingles or or been around someone who has. It's a virus that has infectious, painful blisters that grow on the nerve endings. Doctors say it's probably the best explanation of something that would spread from the top of the head all the way to the bottom of the feet. He couldn't even walk. Verse 9, we meet Mrs. Job. And I've got to tell you, I just get a little frustrated with people being caustic about Mrs. Job. This woman just lost 10 children and their spouses and grandchildren. And she's watching her husband rot. Maybe we should have a little bit more grace in understanding her predicament. His wife said to him, verse 9, do you still hold fast your integrity? All that's left is, is to curse God and, and die. This curse, the Hebrew word for curse doesn't mean curse him like you're swearing at him or, or doing bad things to him. It just means you're, you're responding to God that he's the one who's done this, you acknowledge that and you die. And Job, ever the shepherd, verse 10 says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That all leads us to verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all his adversity that he had come upon him, physical losses, they come to his aid. Verse 12, they lifted up their eyes at a distance, and they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. Each of them tore his robes, threw dust over his heads, over their heads toward the sky. And then in wisdom, they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a single word to him, for they saw his pain was very great. I was... Uh, Part of being a pastor means you have a relationship with almost every hospital in your area. Lots of visiting in the hospital. Um, I had someone who suffered a severe burn on their upper body, and I was going to go pray with them. It had been a few days. They were out of quarantine. I could go do that. And I, I thought I was prepared for what I was walking into. I've seen a lot of things as a pastor doing hospital visitations and holding people's hands when they die, automobile accidents. I've seen a lot. But when I walked in the room, it was the sight and the smell and the eyes that just exuded pain. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't talk. That's what they were experiencing but only for a week. 
And after a week, they began theologizing. They started talking to Job and asking Job questions. And basically, this was their theology. You must have done something really bad for God to do this really bad stuff to you. Now, without covering the, the entirety of the book of Job, that's, that's one of the questions that the Holy Spirit answers through the book of Job, which was, well, yes, this was done because of Job's sin, just like all of our adversity is because of sin, but not a specific sin. This was to glorify God and to show great his kindness and mercy. Now, here's Job's problem. Let me summarize the arguments between verses uh, chapter 2, end of 2, and the end of chapter 8. Here's his problem. He understands that God is way out there and he can't get to him. He also understands that God is so close, he can't get rid of him. He can't outrun him. He, he can't stiff arm him away, away. And if you want a, a theological understanding of the book of Job, it's looking at these two big concepts of God's transcendence, he's way out there and beyond us, and God's imminence, he's right next to us and will never leave us. What do you do with a near, far God? What do you do with a God you can't get to and you can't outrun? It's this odd kind of predicament, isn't it? That's what Job's trying to figure out, and his, his friends are trying to work this out with him. Well, that brings us now, and it's in your little uh, handout there, to Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. This is Job's first talk back. This is his speech. He's been listening and listening and listening to the accusations. Now Job starts talking. Job 9, and we're about to meet... All right, do this with my kids, all right? Look at me. Eye contact, everybody. Eye contact, you gotcha. Track with me. Okay, I, looking, ready? I'm not overstating this. I know that pastors can be evangelistic and say things that are bigger than... This is not evangelisticism. I'm about to read to you the most important verse for your whole life. Pretty big. That's a big promise, isn't it? I'm about to read to you the most important question ever asked by any human. And we're about to see the most important question that the entire Bible answers. Curious? Chapter 9, verse 1. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so, talking about the character of God. Here it is. But how can a man be in the right before God. How can a man be right with God? How can a man be right before God? The Hebrew is with or before. How can a man be right with God? All of Job's suffering, all of Job's discussion with his friends about sin and, and consequences led him to ask this question, how can anyone be right with God? God is holy and pure and everything he does is just and right and he's way above the heavens and I could never get to him. But he hounds me like the hound of heaven. He convicts my conscience. I know that I've done wrong. I know that I've sinned. I know that I'm in a distant relationship with God and I need to be right. How can a man, how can anyone be right with God?
Verse 3, for if one wished to dispute with him, dispute is, a, is really not a, the best way to translate that Hebrew word. If a man wanted to uh, uh, settle accounts with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has defied him without harm? You don't mess with God. It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how when he overturns them in his anger. Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He's the, the causation of earthquakes. Who commands the sun not to shine, sets a seal upon the stars. He rotates the planet for day and night. Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. Who makes the bear, the Orion, the Pleiades, the stars in the heaven, the chambers of the south. Who does great things, unfathomable things and wondrous works without number. And then verse 11, listen to this. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. You see what he's doing? He's magnificent. Look around, you can see the works of his hands. And if he were to walk right past me, He's invisible. Were he to snatch me away, snatch away, were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouched the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? What do I say to God? For though I were right, I would not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I was right about this thing, he would find something else wrong about me. He knows the conscience, his conscience is awakened before a holy God. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. He bruises me with a tempest, multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. If it's a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. A matter of justice, well, who can bring him to court, summon him? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. Verse 20 is interesting. Even if I could self-justify myself, there's some other area that I'm not right about that he could show me I'm wrong about. This whole back and forth in these verses is... He's too far. He walks by me. I don't know he's there. He's so close. I know I'm wrong. Look down at verse 25. He speaks of it, what he fears will be his impending death. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They slip by like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops in on its prey. And though I say, oh, forget my complaint... I will leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful. I'm afraid of all my pains. I know that you will not equip me. I'm accounted wicked. There it is. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit, my own clothes would abhor me. Now everything we've done so far tonight was the introduction. And the sermon's going to be really short, I promise. Job is basically saying, taking a self-assessment, also with the assessment of his friends, and seeing God is so far beyond me, I can't get to him, and yet he condemns me in my conscience, and I know his standards, and I can't outrun him. 
What do I do with the near far God? And then it all happens. Key to the whole passage. Verse 32. For he, for God, is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. The word court there is the judgment seat. Let me explain to you a little bit about what this is. Someone was talking uh, to me earlier, a couple of people were talking about being in Israel. If you've been to Israel, you've probably seen some of these ruins. Outside the city gates was an L-shaped bench. This L-shaped bench right outside the gate is where the elders would sit at certain times of the day. And if anyone had a dispute with someone else in the town, in the village, the both, both parties would come up and stand in between that, in the middle of that L, that bench that the elders sat on, would plead their case and the elders would decide it. That was court. Job pictures the elders of Israel sitting in this L-shaped bench And he says, God is not a man. He's not corporeal and material. He's not a man that we could come, both of us, and he could tell me what he's about, and I could tell him what I'm about. There's there's just no way for us to understand each other. Then he goes beyond God himself and says, I need an attorney I need a lawyer. I need a mediator. Verse 33. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. This is what we've worked hard for the last few minutes to get to. Job comes to the point where he says this. God is not a man. I can't deal with him like a man. There's no mediator or umpire who could get between me And represent me, know my case, know my sin, know my plight, know my suffering, know my heart, know my aspirations, know my pain, know my desire. There's no one who knows me inside and out who can stand in the presence of God and represent me. But he also says there's no umpire for God. He says the stand between us. There's no one who God can send, no angel, no, no uh, representative who can come and stand before me as a man and explain to me all that God is. If you have your Bibles, turn for just a quick minute over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is writing to his young friend and pastor Timothy, who he left to shepherd the church at Ephesus when he went on to be a missionary. He talks about how to rule um, your own life and how to lead the church. And it's all saturated with gospel truth. Good news about Jesus. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Listen to this if you don't have your Bible. Verse 5. He says this. And see if this sounds familiar. There is one God and one mediator, umpire, attorney, between God and men, 
The New American Standard says the man, Christ Jesus. If you have a New American Standard, you'll see that that word the is in italics. You know what that means? You want to know what that means? Yeah, it's not in the original. It literally should read a man, Christ Jesus. It literally should read a human who is God named Jesus of Nazareth, who's the Christ. Do you see that Jesus is the answer to what Job wanted? He wanted a mediator between him and God and God and him. Now this is what's striking to me. At the moment of truth, the most important moment in the entire history of the world, when God was representing himself to man by saying he would provide salvation in Christ, and when man was representing himself to God in the death of Christ with his sin being paid for, get this, both parties, God and men, the disciples being representative, God in heaven, both parties turned away. We sing it all the time, right? The father turns his face, what? Away? How do we know that happened? Because Jesus looks to heaven and says, my God, my, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was the mediator. That's why he's fully God and truly man. He's the only one who understands us. He's the only one who has, was the language of Hebrews, been tempted in every way that we have and hasn't sinned. He has been in our shoes and experienced our trials and our troubles. No one experienced more trial and trouble than the Lord Jesus. He can represent us to God. But being God, he can truly represent God to us. Aren't you glad you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The theme for the summer series is a wonderful theme. Where is Christ in the Old Testament. How do you get to Christ in the Old Testament? Can I suggest to you that Jesus is not exactly in Job 9, but he's the answer to Job's desire and prayer in Job 9? And why? Because he was answering the question at the beginning of the, of the chapter, how can a man be right with God? You know how a man's right with God? We have a, um, a representative, an umpire, a mediator who can be our representative to God, and God has the same mediator who can be his representative to man, and he, he died a cruel death to bring the two together, and it didn't end there, but he rose from the dead. Dominique and I were at In-N-Out today. It's always good to be at In-N-Out. Amen? Those are easy amens to, to get. And... Uh, it was an interesting providence. We were, we were walking over. It was packed. There was no seats. And uh, we were walking over toward this table that had four. And the guy was walking at the same time. And we kind of looked at each other. And we were going to defer. And then Dominic says, hey, do you mind if we sit with you? He said, sure. And we got a chance for, I don't know, better part of a half an hour to talk to him about the Savior. It was just, he was interested and he was um, curious can I, be, can I just embarrass myself for a second? 
I've been just like shut out so many times on evangelistic opportunities that when someone's interested, I'm kind of surprised. <laughs> you sure you want to? You don't want to run? It was a really interesting moment. What were we talking about, though? You know what the, th- the whole thing centered on with that discussion with this guy is this. If Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything. Can I ask you a simple question? This question will determine your eternity. Ready? I love to ask unbelievers this. Where are the bones of Jesus? Seen all these latest uh, documentaries that come out, this ossuary, which is a bone box. They found an ossuary that has the name Jesus of Nazareth. It's a pretty common name. They say, see, it proves that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. No, no. Where are the bones of Jesus? Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is stupid. It's in vain. We have a living Savior. We have hope that extends beyond life into death and beyond. And Here's the the easy part for me because I don't know many of you. If you don't know Christ as Savior, let me encourage you. Let me give you some good news. You need a mediator. You need an umpire between you and God. And he supplied that in his own son, Jesus Christ from Nazareth, who lived a perfect life, died a death that you and I deserve, and rose from the grave to pay for our sins, to give us his goodness, his righteousness, so that God would see in our ledger, Rick Holland, it says, Perfect. And if you knew me, you would say, uh, that, that's the wrong. Somebody made an accounting error. No, that's the right error. That, that, that's the right accounting. Uh, his righteousness is in my account, not because of my own. That's incredible. And if you're here and you just want to know more about that, there's people all around you who would love to talk to you about what it means to know the mediator between you and God. who loved the world so much that he died for those who would believe. My wife and I had a discussion recently. It was that discussion. Um, We had a friend who died prematurely. And so we got out some paper and we scribbled down things we wanted to happen at our funerals. It wasn't much. I didn't say, get all the people who say nice things and bring them. That's not what we said. Basically, it came down to what hymns do you want sung? That was a sobering and a sweet reality. What hymns do you want sung? What songs, Christian, do you want sung at your wedding? I'm sorry, at your, that's a good question too if you're single. Uh, at your funeral. At the head of the list for me was And Can It Be. It's my favorite hymn. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, what's it say? My, does he really say that? Does Wesley really say that? 1738, did he really write that? That thou, my God, shouldst, die for me? Imagine an alien who's never heard of anything in Christianity. He comes to this planet, he comes into your church with that beautiful pulpit, and he hears you singing, and you're singing, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Is that not the strangest thing you've ever heard? 
It is unless it's true. And it is the mediator who is God and who is man died for the sins of those who believe. I just want to encourage you to challenge your heart to see if you do believe. Jesus is all over the place in the Old Testament. Job longed to see him. And we get to see him face to face in our Bibles.